1: 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Monday, everybody. I hope all of you guys had an incredible weekend. Got a lot of basketball to get into because we haven't talked since Friday during the day. We're going to break down six different games from the weekend today. The Warriors getting back on track with a couple of wins, including a road win for the first time this season in Houston. Denver won a big game on the road in Dallas without Nikola Jokic or Jamal Murray, so we're going to get into that one. Uh, Kyrie Irving came back for the Brooklyn Nets yesterday, who got a win against the Memphis Grizzlies. Toronto and Atlanta had a wild overtime game. that had one of the craziest final sequences that I've seen in a long time, so we're going to talk about that one. Uh, Joel Embiid and Giannis Antetokounmpo had a hell of a battle that Joel Embiid ended up winning. And last but not least, the Los Angeles Lakers on a three-game winning streak? Yes. I cannot believe it, but that is the case. They beat the San Antonio Spurs, beat the crap out of the San Antonio Spurs last night. And I can't even remember the last time they had a blowout victory like that. So we're going to get into some Lakers as well. You guys know the drill. Before we get started, subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel so you don't miss any more of our videos. Follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT so you guys don't miss any show announcements. And last but not least, if for whatever reason you guys miss one of these shows and you can't get back over to YouTube to finish, you can find them wherever you get your podcasts under hoops tonight. And lastly, 2000, 2008, 2022, when it comes to the economy, those are some scary years. Dot-com crash, housing crash, and the roller coaster we're going through right now. One thing is certain, it's a dangerous time to not know your numbers, but over 31,000 businesses have the confidence and clarity they need because they rely on NetSuite by Oracle, the number one cloud financial system. NetSuite gives you visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, and budgeting so you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. So how do you prepare for uncertain times? The answer is NetSuite. NetSuite helps you identify rising costs, automate your business processes, and easily see where to save money. That's why 93% of customers say they've improved their visibility and control when they upgraded to NetSuite. So what are you guys waiting for? Right now, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash Jason right now. That's NetSuite.com slash Jason. One last time, NetSuite.com slash Jason. Also, really quickly... Uh, Just so you guys know the schedule this week, because of the holiday, it's going to be a little funky. Um, Today, obviously, we're covering the games from Friday through Sunday. Tomorrow morning, early in the day, I'm going to hit on a couple of games from tonight, because tonight's slate is very interesting. And then we have one last show this week, Tuesday night. We're still deciding whether or not we're going to go after the Sixers-Nets game with Ben Simmons returning to Philly, or the lakers Um, playing in Phoenix, I believe, against the Suns with hopefully LeBron James returning. So I'm not sure which of those two games we'll go after, but we'll do a YouTube Live tomorrow night as well. So two additional shows this week, and then we're taking the rest of the holiday off. So no show Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday before we get into next week. But all right, on that note, let's talk some basketball. So Clay finally got going against the Rockets last night. 41 points, and coincident—well, not a coincidence— Because he got some good looks to start the game, he got a wide-open layup in transition for his first shot attempt. And then uh, his second shot attempt, he was on the right wing, and Kevin Porter Jr. gambled into a passing lane and missed the ball. So he had a wide-open three, which he ended up making. Then on the left side of the floor, he curled over the top of a screen and cut back door and got a left-handed layup. And then he got another wide-open corner three in transition because he was running the floor, and there was some attention thrown towards Steph. Once he saw those go through the basket, everything was going for him. And he had a really like vintage Klay Thompson type of game, finishing at the rim and then aggressively making the tougher shots as the game went along. Because what was, you know, what should be especially encouraging to Warriors fans in this game is even though Clay came out, made a bunch of shots at the beginning of the game, he also went cold for a little while. Missed a couple of layups around the rim, got blocked once, missed one of those like patented one dribble pull-ups. Early second half where he got right to that you know, right elbow and was wide open and left it long. But when that little cold spell came, he kept shooting. He was still confident, and he ended up making a bunch of big shots at the end of the game, including two huge threes that I thought iced the game. His lift has been good all year, and we talked about how his shot quality was pretty good in in terms of the types of looks that he was getting over the course of the game that he was just missing. Yes, he had some stretches of bad shot selection, but he's Clay Thompson, and he's accustomed to playing a certain way. And the good version of Klay Thompson, the one all you Warriors fans are accustomed to also has bad shot selection. They just go in because he's Clay Thompson. It's the audacity and the confidence that he has in his shot. So, it was always a delicate balance. You wanted him to get on track with some easier shots, but you also un- have to understand that that's his shot diet just inherently has a lot of difficult shots kind of mixed in there. So, I have a, I have a feeling this will be the kind of game that kind of gets him going from a confidence standpoint and we should be seeing some more consistent Clay production moving forward. Steph Curry Career high is 16 in assists, and he had 15 last night. The last time he had 16 assists in a game was back in 2014 when Mark Jackson had him basically running everything with the ball in his hands. And you could kind of tell last night he had the ball in his hands a lot, a lot of ball screens, a lot of being aggressive in semi-transition. Those are the situations where Steph ends up having the ball in his hands. That's why, like, remember when I would talk about, you know, the top-tier playmakers – And I'd say, like, it's Luka, it's LeBron, it's Jokic, and it's Chris Paul. Those are, like, your top-tier on-ball playmakers. But I always put Steph up in that group, not because of what he does on the ball in in, in and of itself, but the combination of the two. He is a very good on-ball playmaker, but he also is a off-ball playmaker. Who cares if it's me driving into three bodies and kicking out to an open shooter versus if I'm running off of a couple of screens and dragging multiple defenders while somebody else makes a pass to somebody else for a layup. It's the same type of playmaking, or it's a different type, but it's the same effect of playmaking. And we kind of get distracted from what Steph can do with the ball sometimes because we get so hyper-focused on what he does without the ball. But he's also very good passing the basketball when he has it in his hands and in this particular game is a lot of hunting clay, which is part of being a great playmaker, knowing what guys in a rhythm, what guys not feeding guys to help them get into a rhythm and then continuing to feed them when they're in a rhythm because they have the hot hand and they can carry you through stretches of the game. The Warriors are quietly getting back on track. So since that winless road trip, which was a complete disaster, they go own five since that trip, they're five and two in their next seven games, seventh in offense Seventh in defense, third in net rating. That's really good. Clay Thompson is 20 points per game on 44% from three in this seven game stretch. That's really good. Andrew Wiggins, 20 points per game on 45% from three. Jordan Poole, 14 points per game on 40% from three. And then obviously Steph Curry playing some of the best basketball of his career in this seven game span 34 points per game on 59% from the field, 49% from three, and 85% from the free throw line. Quick shout out for the Rockets. Jabari Smith Jr. I watched him play in summer league and it was kind of a struggle for him there because he can't dribble. And that inevitably, when you get to the NBA level, when when you're playing against athletes that can get up into your airspace and that are going to be able to bother your jump shot a little bit more, you need to create more separation than you did at the college level and he doesn't dribble very well. So I anticipated kind of a slower initial phase of his career, but he's got so much good That he can lean on right now that already makes him a productive NBA player, that it's not going to be as much of a growing pain as you might anticipate. And it's helping Houston in a lot of ways. I love his quick, high release. Shoots it above his head, confidently elevates quickly, doesn't need a ton of space when he's spotting up to get a good look. He also had a couple of mid range pull ups in this game, one against a zone defense where he caught the ball in the middle of the floor, kind of fumbled it, but then he caught it and just rose up over his left shoulder, knocked a shot down. It's so important against the zone to have a guy that's in the middle of the floor that can knock down a jump shot. And then he had another one coming off the right wing where Steph was on him, and he attacked the closeout towards the middle and hit a two-dribble pull-up which is a nice little bit of growth in his game. Inside of 17 feet is where his jumper has been most accurate this year. He's shooting 50% on those short range jump shots out to 17 feet. He's struggling when he gets out of there, but he's already a great defensive player. He kind of his ultimate ceiling reminds me a lot of Richard Lewis. Just a huge wing with a high release that can aggressively shoot the, shoot over the top of smaller defenders and he's a much better defender than Richard Lewis. I will be a much better defender than Richard Lewis ever was. So that's kind of the ceiling that we're looking at there. He just needs to keep working on that handle and that jumper.
0: Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save. ...and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available
1: in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and C.J. Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Does the craziness of everyday life leave you feeling stressed and shedding? Promo code HOOPS, H-O-O-P-S. That's NeutraFold.com, promo code HOOPS. So Denver beats Dallas last night. Really bad loss for Dallas. They have a bunch of bad losses this year, but that was a thing for them last year too. They they have a tendency to play down to the competition. I think it stems from Luka and just his overall personality. Um, There was no Jamal Murray or Nikola Jokic in this game for Denver, which is what makes it such a bad loss. Bones Highland absolutely torched them. I I love that he in this particular game he made an attempt to get to the basket first to find his rhythm before start, started going to his pull up jump shot because like so many guys that have a great pull up jump shot it's 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 kind of like a uh, it's a blessing and a curse because when you're tall and you can shoot a pull up jump shot either off of the step back or off of rhythm dribbles and things like that you have a tendency to feel like in any situation that you can get to it so you're dribbling the ball you're looking at a defensive player and you're thinking I can hit this dribble combo and go to a step back. And I can make it 35, 40% of the time, right? And so you end up settling for it because it's the easy way out when the reality is, is you need to show some willingness to beat people to the basket, to buy that defender, you know, to lead that defender into being a little bit more on their heels, which gives you a little bit more space so that when you go to those step back moves, you have more separation, they're higher quality shots. And then all your percentages skyrocket. And there were a couple of light clock possessions where the ball ended up in Bones Highlands hands in the first quarter of this game where you know, you're waiting for him just to go to his patented step back, and instead he just made a hard dribble move and went to the rim and got it, got himself going there. Then he got to his pull-up jumper later in the game. He's sneaky having a very good pick-and-roll season after a rough start. Bones Highland has run 171 pick-and-rolls this year that have led to 181 points, including passes, which is in the 74th percentile. I think Bones Highland's pick-and-roll success is built on three factors – Everything's built out of that high hesitation dribble where he's kind of like sitting up high and then he can always go into his next dribble or he can rise up into the shot. It's like a it daisy chains all the moves together, which makes him unpredictable. He's also very good at using retreat dribbles right after coming over the screen. So a lot of guys will just go downhill every single time. Bones usually will use the screen, make a little bit of a downhill move, but then retreat dribble, like a step back dribble. And then he sits in that high hesitation and and he waits for the defender to make a move. If the defender keeps going over the screen and he gets tons of separation, he'll go up into the shot. If the defender lunges out at him, he'll come back further to the basket. Or he'll, uh, sh- you know, he'll come out of the high hesitation, push ahead and go towards the basket. If the screen defender is too high, he'll come out of that high hesitation and throw the pocket pass. Everything is built out of coming off that screen, quick retreat, dribble, wait to see what the defense does, and then make a play. And then he can shoot the ball extremely well off the dribble, which is the foundational skill that forces that defender to lunge out at him, opening everything else up, or to bring the screen defender. Up higher, He's shooting 46% on pull-up threes this year. Obviously, that sounds great on the surface, but it's even better than that because he's shooting on many of those way behind the line. And what's nice about Bones Highland's ability to shoot way behind the line is it just spaces the floor in those actions way further out, buying you more room to make decisions and to get ahead of steam going towards the basket. I'll give an example. There was a game against the Spurs a few games ago where Bones Highland is working on the left wing and uh, I can't remember who it was who was guarding the action for the Spurs, but their screen defender came all the way up. So Bones has got a guy on his right hand who's trying to funnel him to the left, and the Spurs screen defender is already out towards almost the three-point line. And what he did is he just backed up further away from the basket to almost like 35 feet, which suddenly at that point, the Spurs screen descent defender stayed back towards the three-point line. That way Bones could get ahead of steam. Coming off of the ball screen, he turned the corner around the screen defender and he ended up working around the baseline through a lefty hook pass, got the Spurs into rotation, and they ended up getting a basket out of it. But I was sitting there thinking, like, for most guys, if they dribbled it further away from the basket, the, de- the defenders would just sit back. The, the the actual on-ball defender would just sit back and he wouldn't be able to get an advantage. But Bones Highland is so damn good at making, like, 27, 30-foot, 30, 30 like even sometimes 32, 33-foot, pull-up jump shots that the guy's always just coming out on him, which is giving him that ability to get downhill. Again, 181 points on 171 pick and rolls, really impressive for a young guard in this league. Um, On the other end of the floor in this particular game uh, with Denver winning on the road against Dallas, it was a clinic. In how to blitz ball screens and recover. So if you look at the bo- if you look at the box score, Luca only took twenty-two uh, only took sixteen shots, only scored twenty-two points. But if you watch the game, he got blitzed on almost every single ball screen. And then Denver was doing a really nice job of taking away the easy passes. So they'd come up to guard the roll man, the guy in the short roll, out of the corner, and then they'd take away that first pass. And so basically there were only two options that were open. He could make the skip pass if he could get if you could actually get the ball there. But most cases, they actually apply ball pressure. And when they'd apply ball pressure, Luka would not be able to make the skip pass. And the guy at the top of the key would have to, like, retreat out, like, V-cut out to 40 feet from the rim for Luka just to get an escape pass away. Now your advantage is gone, and it's a successful double team. All game long, Dallas was struggling. There were plays in there where Luka would like use a nice escape dribble to, you know, as he's coming off the screen, cover like 10 feet of ground. So even though the screen defenders on him, he's got a couple seconds before the on-ball defender recovers to his backside and he could actually elevate and throw that skip pass across the court or in that process force another defender to find another opening. He did hit the roll man a few times. He did make some plays out of that, but for the most part, Denver rendered that Luka high pick-and-roll useless because of them just being able to trap, apply enough ball pressure to take away the skip pass, and all the passes that Luka was making were more just getting rid of the basketball rather than making the defense pay. And, you know, honestly, like to Luca's credit, I thought he played it pretty well in this game. The role players just missed a lot of shots and a lot of reads in their four on three actions. It's tough to handle a scheme like that in general in the regular season because you have to be so sharp on the backside. But they have personnel to be better than they have been as of late. And Dallas is having a lot of offensive issues right now. They are 21st in offensive rating in their last 10 games. Uh, Memphis-Brooklyn. So, Brooklyn wins 127-115. Jaron Jackson Jr., John Morant, and Desmond Bain were all out. But I still thought this was a pretty significant challenge for Brooklyn because Memphis is so physically strong down the roster. And for all the length and athleticism Brooklyn has, they're very thin and they can be pushed around. So, I thought this would be a tough game. And it was in a lot of ways. They gave up 13 offensive rebounds. They got bullied in the paint, but they still won. And just like with the Warriors – Sneaky, you know, we look at the schedule, you can think, uh, you can become, become pessimistic pretty quickly. But if you look at their recent schedule, they're 6-9 in their last nine games, or six, excuse me, 6-3 and three in their last nine games. They have the fourth best defense in the league during that span. Remember how bad they were to start the year? They were the worst defense in the league for the first half of this chunk of games. And then all of a sudden, they're the fourth best defense in the league. That's not on Steve Nash. I I, I just, I never bought that as an excuse. Those dudes just weren't playing hard to start the season. Now they are. Now, again, like I said, not Steve Nash's fault, but players tune coaches out. You get a different voice in there. Suddenly, they're listening. Suddenly, they're bought in. It works. That's why, even though sometimes coaches can be a scapegoat firing, Sometimes it's just the best way to shuffle things up and get a new voice in there, get guys to play hard. Like like it or not, even though it was not Steve Nash's fault, the firing triggered the team playing hard. As messed up as that is, it's just the reality of the situation. They're also 12th in offense in their last nine games, which is pretty solid, especially since Kyrie's been out for most of that. Um, third in net rating overall, 23rd in rebounding, which is not good, but it's a hell of a lot better than it was to start the season. If you remember, I think they were second to last in the league in the first couple of weeks. Uh, Kyrie looked out of shape, but he made a lot of good moves that like that, that's the dead giveaway for guys out of shape when you're making the nice moves, you're seeing the floor and you're hitting the gaps and you're getting to your spots, but you're just not getting the lift to knock down shots. There were several plays where he made the right reads, made the right dribble combination to get through the traffic and then just like left a layup short on the rim or missed a pull-up jump shot, things along those lines. That's to be expected overall. I thought he looked fine though, physically. Um, KD, another quiet, great night. 26-7-7 26 seven and seven on 16 shots he's having a quiet great season check out some of these numbers um 148 points on 125 pick and rolls which is in the 91st percentile 141 points on 121 isos which is in the 85th percentile and 88 points on 77 post-ups which is in the 84th percentile all that includes passing with with the uh access uh with the data that I have access to I'm always going to be looking at with passing because that's just the way the game actually works um Ben Simmons He makes his return to Philly tomorrow. We will be covering that game either after the Lakers game or immediately after that game. Another big game, 22 points last night. He's averaging 16 points, 9 rebounds, and 5 assists on 85% shooting in his last three games. So a little bit of a sign of life on the Ben Simmons front. Good variety, too. Some self-created stuff in this game. He had two straight-up post-ups in the first half where he went to right-handed hook shots that he made. He had a fake dribble handoff where he went to the basket and finished with his left hand. Um, attacking the rim in transition, that those, that self-created stuff is like gold for the Nets, you know, especially with uh, what they what they were hoping for from Ben Simmons when they first made the trade, and then he was really effective again in the short roll and in the dunker spot, just quick finishing around the rim off of the attention that Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant dictate. Interestingly enough, again in this game, uh, Ben Simmons finished just about every shot with his right hand. Uh, KOC, Kevin, Kevin O'Connor works for the ringer has this theory that he's been going with for a couple years now that Ben Simmons is actually right-handed and that he just shoots left-handed for some stupid reason and that he has no business doing that. And I'll admit at first I was super skeptical and I've been super skeptical of that just because like, it it just defies, you know, it just defies logic that he wouldn't have made that switch if he actually was right-hand dominant, but I'm starting to drink the Kool-Aid a little bit. KOC might be onto something. This dude shoots everything with his right hand. And his form is so much more natural with his right hand. His left hand, he crossfires across his face. But with his right hand, he's in line the way that you're supposed to be. Um, so, yeah, maybe maybe that is what it is. But Ben Simmons, a little sign of life. Some good basketball from him and the Nets overall playing some good basketball. We'll see if it lasts. I'm skeptical about this team once some, you know, controversy or some adversity hits them. But we will see what happens. Uh, Toronto-Atlanta. I'm not going to talk about this total game because I just turned it on at the very end when it was live. Uh, tough loss for Toronto. Scotty Barnes smoked an easy layup out of the dunker spot right before the end of regulation should have dunked it instead went to the backboard and slapped the backboard and tried to make a layup and shot it over the rim. And then they ended up losing in, in OT. The reason why I added this game to the list, uh, because it's, it's hard to evaluate Toronto, Toronto right now. They're super banged up they're They've had guys in and out of the lineup and, uh, um, and it's just hard to learn about teams when they're playing like that. Uh, but, the, like it, this was a classic Nick Nurse game because it's 122-120. OG and gets fouled. He goes to the line. He makes both free throws. After he makes the free throw, there's just under four seconds left. This is a set play type of situation. So in this situation, at 122-122, coming off of a made free throw, you can bet that Atlanta has called a set that they have prepped for. All these coaches have end of game scenarios. This is a play we run with. You know, less than 24 seconds left. You know, in a full court situation, this is a play we run with less than 10 seconds left in a full court situation. This is a play that we run with less than five seconds left in a full court situation. This is a play we run when there's one second left and we have to heave it up the court and quick catch and shoot. Like they have like time and time and situation, uh, uh, time and score, like situational plays for all these situations. Atlanta has a call in. Same thing goes for the defensive end of the floor. Nick Nurse has a call in. Okay. This is the way we're guarding. Typically, in a situation like that, you're staying back past half court. No one fouls, and your job is to contain the basketball and just force them to take a shot over the top, and you live with the results because you don't want to give up something easy. If they're going to beat you, you want them to beat you with them making a tough shot over a contest. Instead, what happens? Nick Nurse has four Raptors in the backcourt pressing the basketball. Atlanta gets the ball in, pass, pass. All of a sudden, Trey Young is breaking along the right side of the floor in a two-on-one situation. The one Raptor in the backcourt has to step up, easy lob, and A.J. Griffin catches and lays the ball in the basket to win the game. I-, I, was, I-, I was completely stunned watching the play. I showed my wife. My wife actually has a basketball background as well. She played in college, and, and her and I were just dying that this, that was what the head coach of the Toronto Raptors asked them to do in a 122-122 situation, tie game with less than 4 seconds left. Any other coach in the NBA, you, know, you might you might apply a little bit of ball pressure, but it's usually not going to be until after they cross half court. Everything you're supposed to contain in front, the one thing you can't do is give up a wide open layup at the basket. It was truly baffling. And this is kind of a Nick Nurse thing. He overcoaches. He always wants to overhelp. He always wants to over-dig. He always wants to over-gamble. And I get it to a certain extent because Toronto can't score in the half-court. According to Cleaning the Glass, they're 29th in half-court offense. So he wants to get out and transition as much as possible. But the reality is is it's hurting their half-court defense, too. Because of that aggression, they're giving up a lot of open shots. Like it w- They have the longest and most athletic roster in the NBA. They should be able to leave guys in an island on one-on-one and do well with teams trying to shoot over the top of them. But what will happen is some guy will drive to the basket, Scotty Barnes will be with him, sliding along, and he might have an opportunity to go to the rim, but Scotty's going to challenge him. It's going to be some incredibly difficult finish, and instead like another Raptor will help out of the strong side and it's an easy kickout to a wide-open three. That's why they're 26th in half-court defense, Despite being the longest and most, excuse me, 24th in half court defense, despite being the longest and most athletic roster in the NBA. I get it. Like, you should try to manufacture as much transition basketball as you can, because you struggle with scoring the half court. So push the ball with pace, makes or misses. Push the ball up the wings. Try to attack the rim with your size and athleticism, even if there is some congestion in transition. I support all of that. In hell, like dig into the passing lanes and trust your Trust your athleticism to be able to close out, but the overhelping and the overdigging has to stop because it's hurting this team in a lot of different ways. And there, again, like that's just in the flow of the game. Situationally, I literally cannot fathom why Nick Nurse had four Raptors in the backcourt with less than four seconds left of a tie game. It was it was one of the more puzzling things that I've seen in a long time. Nick Nurse is an amazing basketball coach. He just has his quirks. And his quirk right now is he's an overhelp guy. He's overly aggressive. All right, Milwaukee, Philly. This was a fun game, I believe, on Friday night. Embiid and beating Giannis from the start, we're just trying to send messages to each other. Just, you know, Giannis has been kind of floating through the early parts of games a lot this year, just doing dribble handoffs and trying to get his teammates open looks. He was. Putting his head down and trying to score every damn time to start the game. So was Joel Embiid. You know, Joel Embiid ended up having this like crazy block on Giannis where he like threw the ball into the ground. It had this like really intense vibe, but the game was very back and forth. Tyrese Maxey ended up hurting his foot and going down. And it was a really impressive win for Philly without James Harden, with Tyrese Maxey going down to close this game out. And it was a lot of just amazing Joel Embiid and some puzzling decision making from Drew Holiday and Giannis. So it was tied at 99. And from there, it was all decision making and shot making that determined the outcome. So at, at 99, um, Embiid catches on the short roll, and Drew Holiday's guarding Shake Milton. Shake Milton's on the left wing. And Drew Holiday just leaves Shake Milton and just lunges kind of half heartedly to try to take the ball away from Embiid. Doesn't even come close. Now he's way out of the play. Drew Holiday's like at the right wing now. Shake Milton relocates to the left corner. This is how wide open he was. Embiid had time. Multiple seconds to identify that Shake Milton was open, then throw him a pass. That was a terrible pass, way too high. Shake Milton had to jump up and high point it, and Shake had so much time that he was able to high point it, come down, get his feet set, and then patiently rise up and knock down the shot. So a really bad gamble from uh, from Drew Holiday ended up getting a wide open shot for Shake Milton that he made. Very next possession, Giannis goes down and posts up. Uh, P.J. Tucker knocks him over. Joel Embiid has to come down. As a result, the ball gets worked around in rotation. And like three, four closeouts later, Drew Holiday gets a wide open shot on the left wing. He misses it. Okay, make or miss league. It's a one possession game still. They go down the other end. They get a stop on Shake Milton and pick and roll. And then Giannis comes down and just jacks up a three with 16 seconds left. And he had just checked into the game like two possessions prior. And he left it way short. Which is a typical thing that happens when you come in and shoot cold, and the uh, the Sixers uh, uh, can't secure the rebound. They go, uh, they get an offensive rebound, they get it back, and Grayson Allen has to take. There's only like seven seconds on the shot clock. Grayson Allen takes like a tough pullback three and misses it, and then from there, Embiid just took the game over with shot making. So it's still one twelve one oh nine, excuse me one oh two ninety nine, and it was on the short roll and B catching. Brooke Lopez is backpedaling and he does that patented hesitation pull-up jump shot right before the right below the free throw line, knocks it down. They go down, Drew Holiday gets called for an illegal screen, and then uh Embiid just a, a ridiculous step back jump shot over Brooke Lopez at the left elbow, and the game's over. So basically, yeah, there's a little bit of shot making in there. Shake Milton makes the open three. Drew Holiday misses the open three. But then from there, it was a combination of Joel Embiid playing like an MVP, making two tough off-the-dribble jump shots. And Giannis and Drew Holiday making three mistakes. Drew Holiday bad gamble to try to take away that, or to try to double team Joel Embiid leads to a wide open three. Drew Holiday sets an illegal screen, and on the play he wasn't really even helping Giannis. He was like kind of moving and like trying to uh, to dis, uh, to mess up PJ Tucker at the foul line. Get called for an illegal screen. And then, uh, uh, and then Giannis Antetokounmpo taking a three with 16 seconds on the shot clock. It's just bad decision-making. So kudos to Embiid. That's how you win a game against a really damn good Bucks team, down your two best guards, just execution at the end of the game, not doing stupid stuff, and your best player doing what best players have to do, which is knock down big shots at the end of the game. Joel Embiid, his perimeter shooting continues to be really impressive. Inside of 17 feet on jump shots this year, he's 32 for 60, which is great. In between 17 feet in the three-point line, so long twos, he's 9 for 14. He can't make anything outside the three-point line, really, but he's making everything inside of the three-point line, which is making up for some of his passing limitations and where he's getting a lot of his scoring right now. And again, the ability to go to that at the end of games, to shoot over the top of the defense the way he did over Brook Lopez is a big weapon. He's got a midfoot sprain right now, though, that's going to keep him out for the next two games. So hopefully he gets well soon. All right, last but not least, before we get out of here today, Spurs-Lakers. AD's wrecking ball tour continues. His last three games, he had 30 again last night. His last three games, 35-17-2, and 62% field goals, 91% on the foul line at 11 attempts. That's a big indicator for AD when he's starting to get his shooting touch back because he shoots well from the foul line, and he made a couple pull-up jump shots in this game as well. Three stocks per game. Remember, that's blocks and steals combined. And he's 23 for 29 in the restricted area, which is to be expected. But similar to Joel Embiid with AD, it's so important for him to be able to make that perimeter jump shot. Because if you can't pass over a congested defense, you need to be able to shoot over a congested defense. And in this three-game stretch, he's 14 for 28 between the restricted area and the three-point line. So in all that short to mid-range stuff, he's making about half of his shots right now, which is really solid. And then obviously he's been defensive player of the year type of impact on the defensive end of the floor, LeBron I think is going to come back on Tuesday against the Suns. And you know, I, I, I've been I've been hard on those two all season. I used to say about LeBron and AD before this year, before the Russ year, I used to say like, if you get a good game out of your role players, you're beating the crap out of the other team. If you get an okay game out of your role players, you're winning by 10, 15 points. If you get a bad game out of your role players the Lakers might still barely win. That's how good the LeBron James-Anthony Davis pairing used to be. But it was because Anthony Davis and LeBron were two of the top five players in the world. And they played like it almost every night. And as a result, regardless of what they got from their role players, they were able to win a lot of games. Anthony Davis playing well, playing up to his potential, fixes a whole lot of problems for the Lakers. Like, guess what? This is his first time getting three 30-point games in a row since guess when? Since the 2020 season when he won the title and was a top-five player in the world. They went 3-0 and against bad teams, yes, but they were losing to bad teams last year with Anthony Davis and Russell Westbrook. Now they've beat three of them in a row because Anthony Davis is playing like a top-five, top-ten player. They, like... We can talk about the periphery all we want, and we will, and they are legit problems. The Lakers still need to make a trade. And, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, plenty over the course of the rest of the season if they continue to play well. But so many of their problems would be fixed by Anthony Davis playing like a top 10, top 5 player and LeBron James playing like a top 5 player. Anthony Davis has played like a top 5 player three nights in a row, and the Lakers are 3-0. and Now that works against the bad teams. You're going to play Phoenix on Tuesday. In order to beat the great teams, you will need Anthony Davis and LeBron at that level. So, AD is holding up his end of the bargain, and it's time for LeBron to do the same on both ends of the floor. And he needs to do it by continuing to feed Anthony Davis, keeping him featured in the offense. Now, some of that is a little, like... Like a lot, of, I've, I've seen, of course, the usual, you know, kind of nefarious characters on Twitter saying things like, oh, they're 3-0 since, you know, uh, it, they've won three games in a row without LeBron. It's because Anthony Davis is getting the basketball. Th- that's just dumb. LeBron is not to blame for the Lakers' struggles in the sense that, you know, a- AD finally is getting it going now when he's out. AD is just playing better. It's really that simple. LeBron James consistently looks for AD. He has gone away from him when AD has not had his head in the game and when AD has struggled. Now, does LeBron need to feed him more to continue this going? Absolutely, but I don't see those two. I don't see those two priorities crosswise with each other. I don't think LeBron coming back affects Anthony Davis's ability to get 35 and 17. He's absolutely capable of doing that. We saw him do it in 2020. We know he can. What happened is, is Anthony Davis massively regressed for two damn seasons. And LeBron James lost some of his confidence in him and went away from him a little bit. If AD is playing like this, LeBron is going to continue to feed him. Now, what do I expect? The reality is, is LeBron's a rhythm player. And he's old and he's out of shape and he hasn't been able to stay on the court consistently this season. So as a result, I expect him to go into Phoenix and struggle. Mikhail Bridges is one of the best perimeter defenders in the entire league. And LeBron is going to be out of rhythm and out of shape. So... I wouldn't expect much from LeBron for about a week, but if Anthony Davis can continue to play this way and LeBron can stay on the floor and get in shape and he can meet Anthony Davis on that level, you'll see the Lakers start to cook a little bit. Austin Reeves, season-high 21 points. He's getting a lot of pick-and-roll touches now that LeBron's out, and he's been great. And it's a couple different things. He's one of the best passers on the team, and then he's improved mightily as a shooter. He's having a 50-40-90 season right now. He's run 50, uh, 45 pick and rolls this year that have led to 45 points, which is in the 60th percentile, so a little bit above average, which is not bad for his first real volume with that type of action at the NBA level. And then last Laker I wanted to shout out was uh, Lonnie Walker. He had 14 points again again last night. He's averaging 16.5 points on 58% true shooting, which is really good. He's run 44 pick and rolls this year for 48 points, which is in the, uh, which is in the 82nd. Percentile. I did a whole video on this on Twitter, a breakdown with annotations and voiceovers. You can find on my Twitter feed at underscore Jason LT. Uh, in it, I have went over all the different ways that he's succeeding in pick and roll. He's willing to get downhill, and he's got the athleticism to succeed when he does that. Because he does that, he engages the screen defender, actually gets him involved in the play, which is what opens up the playmaking. And then from there, he makes the right reads, and he has a good amount of shot making. He's making enough little pull up fifteen footers and pull up threes like that to generate some points. 82nd percentile, again, on uh, not terrible volume for a pick-and-roll player. Good, uh, You know, I was critical of the Lonnie Walker signing. Now, I this disaster has been a complete— <laughs> this summer has been a complete disaster for Rob Palenka, but there have been a couple of small wins in there. Lonnie Walker on the mid-level exception, that was a solid signing. Uh, I think Troy Brown Jr. has been pretty good. Now, overall, the vision of the roster, failing to make a rush trade— that all I think undercuts a great deal of that success. But the Lonnie Walker signing, I was wrong about. And I have to I have to eat some crow. I, I thought that he was a little too undersized to use the mid-level exception on, but he's been better defensively than he was in San Antonio and better offensively than he was in San Antonio. So Rob Polinka made a bet on a young former lottery player to to exceed expectations when he came in the door, and he did. And we have to give him credit for that. All right, that's all I have for today. You guys know the drill. Tomorrow morning, we'll have a quick short breakdown on tonight's games, and then tomorrow night, we'll have one last live show, and then we're off through the holiday. As always, I sincerely appreciate your support, and I will see you next time.